Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Lana Ulrich, Senior Director of Content. The Office of the Presidency has forged some of our nation's very best and very worst leaders. In this town hall, a panel of presidential biographers explores what makes or breaks a presidency and how presidents get ranked throughout time. The NCC's Jeff Rosen and Michael Gerhardt join author Robert Strauss for a conversation moderated by C-SPAN Executive Chair Brian Lamb. But first, C-SPAN President Susan Swain introduces the panel, as well as C-SPAN's new book, The Presidents, noted historians rank America's best and worst chief executives. Here's Susan to get the conversation started. about C-SPAN's 40th anniversary, we said, what are we going to do to celebrate this in a meaningful way? And decided to do this book, uh, which is called The Presidents, and it, its subtitle is Noted Historians Rank America's Best and Worst Chief Executives. The reason why it was an important thing for us is it allowed us to showcase two very important aspects of our work over the years. The first is a survey of presidential historians, and the second is this real treasure trove of interviews that we have collected over the 40 years, many of them done by Brian, uh, of presidential historians. But here are, is a look at some of the names of people that are included in the book. Uh, that are a part of our collection here. And you'll see some familiar names, Edna Medford, Ron Chernow, uh, Lou Cannon, Richard Norton Smith, Douglas Brinkley, and uh, Robert Caro and others who are very well-known contemporary presidential historians. And, and three, our three panelists today, the idea for this was to bring together three of the presidential biographers who are featured in the book to talk about uh, something other than the pantheon of presidents who are on Mount Rushmore. Jeffrey Rosen has written a biography on William Howard Taft, and uh, he was interviewed by Brian. Uh, and as you know, we, uh, in addition to his work here, he's a professor at GW Law School, which made him particularly interested in the work of Taft who went on to become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And we've known him as a journalist, which he is in his heart and soul since his early days in Washington, author of six books. Michael Gerhardt, uh, sorry, let me back up. Michael Gerhardt uh, wrote a book called The Forgotten Presidents. Brian's gonna be talking to him about a number of them. In our book, he is on the chapter on Jimmy Carter. And Robert Strauss is a Philadelphia area journalist. He worked at the Daily News and KYW for you Philadelphians. And his presidential biography, it's my favorite title of all the biographies, worst period, president period ever, period. And I'm sorry for you Pennsylvanians here, but it is your only president. <laughs> James Buchanan. Of course, he's from the southern tier of the state, not Philadelphia, but nonetheless, he's our, our state's claim to fame. And, and we're gonna learn more from Robert Strauss about why, in fact, he is the worst president ever. The organizing principle for this book was the second resource that I mentioned, and it is a survey that we have done of presidential historians three times. We did the first one in 2000 when Bill Clinton was leaving office, the second one uh, when George W. Bush was leaving office, and the third in 2017 as Barack Obama was leaving office. We worked with three very well-known historians, Edna Medford, 
uh, Douglas Brinkley and Richard Norton Smith, uh, as well as long ago as 20 years ago, to put together the survey with 10 leadership qualities. We send it out to 100 historians. We work very hard for geographic and ideological diversity and gender diversity over the years so we can represent different points of view as they're judging them. And here are the qualities that the presidents are judged on. So you might think about them as this conversation is going to unfold. Public persuasion, crisis leadership, economic management, moral authority, international relations, administrative skills, relations with Congress, vision and setting an agenda. For some reason, I always think of George H.W. Bush when the vision thing comes up. Uh, pursued equal justice for all. And the final one, they wanted to add, because the office of the presidency has changed so much over the course of our history, performance within the context of the times in which they serve. Now, why do we do these surveys? Uh, we do them because, well, I'll tell you a little story why we do them. I was standing out at the, the register where the books are being sold, and I heard a woman going, why is he on the cover of this book? Um, I don't think that was such a great president. And that's exactly why we do these surveys. We want people to get involved, interested, and passionate about our own history. And we live in a society where lists do that. Our email is filled every day with the top 10 of this or the bottom five of that. And doing this, although this is historians and has an academic base, it still provides a basis for you to get involved and have conversations around your dinner table about whether or not you think the historians did a good job of rating presidents you know and presidents that you are just learning about. So who's up and who's down over the course of the time that we did this? Andrew Jackson, we just heard, has secured his place on the $20 bill for the next several years, but he's gone down in our survey over time. He went from 13th place in 2000 to 18th in 2017. Woodrow Wilson, from 6th down to 11th. This one always boggles my mind because I kind of like Rutherford B. Hayes. He's gone from 26 to 32. And Grover Cleveland, 17 to 23. And I'm sure our historians will have some perspectives on some of the things as our society has changed about why the historians are looking at them more critically. Well, who's up? Dwight Eisenhower. When we first did the survey in 2000, in ninth place, now he's at fifth. Bill Clinton, when the first survey, he was just coming out of the impeachment process, 21st place. In the next two surveys, he's kind of settled in in 15th position. And finally, this is another interesting one, from 33rd place to 22nd, Ulysses S. Grant. And one of the things that we found over the course of time is these big biographies that become big bestsellers really do influence the views that the historians also have and our society has of presidents. And of course, Grant has had a couple of those in recent years. The top five overall, not going to be any surprises, Dwight Eisenhower now in fifth position, Theodore Roosevelt in fourth. Franklin Roosevelt in third, feeling a little Mount Rushmore coming on here, aren't we? George Washington in second place, and guess who's in number one? Abraham Lincoln, of course. And the bottom five, John Tyler, Tidewater, Virginia's favorite son who uh, unfortunately went on to join the, the Confederate Congress after he left the White House, a man without a party while he was in the White House, and uh, 
He also was buried with a Confederate flag on his uh, grave in 39th spot, not the bottom, interestingly. Warren Harding, we're learning more about Warren Harding as the years go by and his active love life. Um, he's in 40th spot. Franklin Pierce, New Hampshire's only president, 41st position. Franklin Pierce had a very difficult time with sectionalism, uh, and he also came into office with an incredible tragedy, which I'll tell you very briefly. He and his wife had three sons. Two of them died before he was elected to the, the presidency. The third son, 11-year-old Benny, was riding on a train with his parents in New Hampshire as they were making their way to Washington. The train had a tremendous accident. Benny was thrown out of the train and was killed. And the president carried his son's lifeless body back to his wife on the train. And that's how they started their early presidency. Of course, he had a hard time assembling his cabinet. Uh, his wife spent much of the first years in the White House in widow's uh, morning weeds on the second floor writing letters to her departed son. So a very difficult personal start and a very difficult time in our nation's history. 42nd place, Andrew Johnson, the first president to be impeached. I'll just leave it at that because of time. And there is good old James Buchanan, Mr. Strauss, worst president ever. Okay, quickly on the modern presidents. Ronald Reagan is the only one in the top 10, in the ninth position. George H.W. Bush in 20th spot. He's in between the two Adamses, which I think is interesting since he's father and son duo as well. I think it will be fascinating at the end of the Trump presidency when we survey again because we just went through three days of national scene setting of his presidency. Presidential funerals are a very important tool that presidents use to put their image in the public mind for posterity. And we witnessed an awful lot of themes being repeated throughout the three days of his funeral about integrity, his war heroism, being a decent man, et cetera. Well, it'll be interesting to see where he fares next time. Bill Clinton, we mentioned at 15. George W. Bush uh, is in 33rd spot. And uh, the last survey, his first time, he was one spot lower, so he was in the bottom 10. He moved up out of the bottom 10 by virtue of adding another president to the mix, I'm afraid. He's got um, some really difficult uh, things uh, for the assessment of time, um, and it'll be interesting over the course of time to see what happens with his rating. And finally, Barack Obama in his debut in 12th position, really good start to his uh, assessment. Um, so these are the three presidents featured with our three historians today, and I'm about to turn the podium over to them. How did they do? William Howard Taft, Jeff, Jeffrey's subject, his highest score was in administrative skills. Does that surprise you? Yeah. Lowest score, public persuasion. Yeah, rings true, doesn't it? Total score, 528 out of a possible 1,000. Michael, Jimmy Carter, his highest score, equal justice for all. Does that make sense with him? Yeah. Uh, lowest score, crisis leadership. Yep, there we go. Uh, total score, 506 out of 1,000. And James Buchanan, I'll tell you, he was in the cellar for all of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> he had either 41, 42, or 43 in every single category. He was so low, he was 30 points below Andrew Johnson. Sorry about that. Um, his highest score was 41st position in administrative skills. And his lowest score in seven of the 10 categories was the number 43 spot. How about that? 245 out of a possible 1,000. I can't wait for you to tell us stories about this man and how he fared. So I'm going to sit down now and enjoy this wonderful panel along with you. Thanks for your attention. Susan, I only have one quarrel with you then. When you referred to Ronald Reagan being the only modern president in the top 10 for somebody like me, Eisenhower, 
<laughs> LBJ and FDR are still modern in my lifetime. I want to start off, thank you, Susan, and this book wouldn't be here today without Susan's editing, which has been tremendous. But let me start with our three historians. Would you all just start off by telling us a little bit about why you even got into the writing of history? Robert Strauss? Why we got into writing business or? History. Oh, writing history. Well, I was a journalist. I worked at, as he said, at the Daily News and Channel 3 here, among other places. And, but I was always interested in it. My father bought me little statuettes of the presidents when I was a little boy. So, you know, they were sort of my guys instead of soldiers. He bought me a book called Facts About the Presidents, which is like money ball for presidents. Tells you when, you know, Monroe's mother died and all that other sort of thing. So like baseball statistics, I was always involved with that. And, the reason, and I'm also a contrarian, as my wife will tell you. And uh, to write about the worst president was much more fun than figuring out who the, the best one was. Um, well, it's a good question. I'm still trying to figure out the answer. Um, <laughs> I, I think there are a couple different reasons. I mean, the first is um, I'm a constitutional law professor. And in my field and in my classes, everybody is totally absorbed with the Supreme Court and focuses all the time on the Supreme Court. And I'm fascinated by other institutions that are really intertwined with and do a lot of constitutional law, presidency, Congress. So uh, I've been particularly interested in how presidents impact the understanding of the Constitution and its development over time. Um, I'm also, the second, this is the second reason, um, I, I think of myself sometimes as a child of Watergate. I grew up under, in the shadow of Watergate, and Watergate shaped a lot of my understanding of constitutional law, but particularly um, the conflicts between presidents and Congress. Um, and so out of that shadow, we get Jimmy Carter, uh, but we also get Nixon and Ford. And it also changes, I think, a lot of how we view constitutional law these days. Um, so that's another reason I got interested. Jeffrey Rosen. Well, as Susan said, I'm a journalist at heart, so I only write on deadline and to assignment. And the first uh, biographies I wrote uh, on Louis Brandeis and William Howard Taft were assignments from series. For Brandeis, it was the Yale Jewish Live series. For Taft, this wonderful American President series. I didn't know much about either man before getting the assignment and was just so excited to learn about, in Taft's case, an underappreciated figure and to share him with the world. But I really resonated with the writing of history because when I was a kid, reading presidential biographies was the most inspiring thing I did. I read a lot, and I remember going to the Library of Congress for the first time, the Adams Building, and being so filled with wonder to think that all the books of the world were in that building. And then learning more about Adams and Jefferson and reading biographies of Truman McCullough's biography about the bookish kid with the glasses who read and uh, learned leadership through reading, or the amazing FDR biographies by Doris Kearns Goodwin about how another bookish uh, boy found his life through books, but I just resonated so much to these his heroic stories, and that's why I find writing biographies to be such an inspiring uh, experience. I want to go back to Robert Strauss's book on James Buchanan, and I want all of you to jump in on this, and it doesn't have to relate just to James Buchanan. He waffled about everything. <laughs> right. Why did you, I, I picked this right out of our interview. Why did you say that? 
Well, you know, at some point, the buck does stop. And the president is the point where it has to stop. And uh, most of our great presidents, the guys you had up there, you know, made the decision. Now, they weren't all great decisions. You know, I, I would say that uh, uh, the Japanese internment wasn't a wonderful decision. But, uh, you know, sometimes it comes to a head. And Buchanan was the ultimate diplomat. First of all, he was the best party giver of the middle of the 19th century. He was a, he, you know, there are positive things. He, he was a really, apparently a really nice guy. He had no enemies. But he was always just trying to please people. And uh, he was a diplomat. Like I said, he was ambassador to Russia. He was ambassador to England. Uh, and he was really, he was really good at, at uh, you know, having the czar over for, for lunch, you know. So, uh, so like I say, there were certain, certain things that, that, that were good about him, but uh, he did waffle. Michael Gerhardt, your book, uh, the Carter chapter, came out of your book with about 13 presidencies, 20, 12 men. Any of those other 12 besides Jimmy Carter, and I'm not so sure you would call him a waffler, were they wafflers? Yeah, they were, they were wafflers, but I think one of the more interesting things we learn about presidents that get rated uh, lowly is, is precisely because they weren't wafflers. They actually were too strong. Um, they, they were stubborn, uh, and sometimes stubborn in, in really destructive ways. Um, I wouldn't say Carter was just, uh, stubborn in a destructive way, but Carter was not a waffler. Carter came in with a very strong sense of what he wanted to do. And part of his problem is he just didn't uh, listen to other people. He felt he was morally sort of right about different issues and then just kind of charged ahead. And it turned out that sometimes that was good, sometimes it was bad, at least sometimes it was popular, sometimes it was unpopular. Uh, and that became the story of his presidency. With some of the other folks I wrote, uh, wrote about, for example, William Henry Harrison, you know, he died 30 days after becoming president. Um, but in those 30 days, he was stubborn. He actually had to be stubborn in some respects. He had to push against Henry Clay, who wanted to really be the power behind the throne. And Harrison didn't want that to happen. It turned out to, to be uh, the defining moment, in a sense, of his short presidency. Um, and a lot of presidents end up um, becoming unpopular or, again, rank low precisely because they'll stake out a position, not listen to other people, not react to context or the, the events at the time and end up losing um, the presidency and losing in the historical judgment of their presidency. Do you think he's right about William Howard Taft being among the list of the 12 that were the minor presidents? Sure, as a uh, presidential leader, and the C-SPAN survey is exactly right that for presidential leadership, Taft is low, but for administrative skills, he's incredibly high. But the incredible power of Michael's book, which I learned so much from, is that, <laughs> no, if you want a book about the constitutional legacy of the presidents, read Michael's book, because he's the only person who's written uh, a sustained book about their constitutional visions. And as Michael said, and Taft is among these 12, uh, characters who are not great as presidential leaders, but have a very strong constitutional vision. And in Taft's case, his vision was heroic and seems all the more prescient, uh, trying to defend the Madisonian constrained presidency and Congress at a time when the new populist presidency embodied by Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson was rising up. 
And this question of waffling is really interesting. If you, if you know what you know, if you're too sure of your constitutional vision, as Taft and the other uh, minor presidents show, you, you refuse to engage in the arts of public persuasion. Taft says, I will not play a part for popularity. If the people don't like my vision, so be it. And he, instead of lobbying Congress and speaking to the people, would write these legalistic speeches and expect that that would be persuasive. But I was trying to uh, think about the difference between waffling and deliberating. The great presidents took a while to make up their mind. You think about Harry Truman and the bomb, where he did a lot of reading, including literature, uh, uh, before he made up his mind. Or Roosevelt waiting so long before he thought the American public was ready for World War II, seizing the moment, Lincoln changing the purpose of the war from preserving the Union to eradicating slavery. Uh, so the real vice, perhaps, is a lack of deliberation. And waffling isn't the only uh, way of avoiding deliberation. You can just refuse to deliberate because you're too sure of your principles in advance. And I think that was the case for Taft. Michael Gerhardt, in the book that Jeffrey Rosen wrote about uh, William Howard Taft, I can't remember whether it was a quote or whether you called him this, but somebody called him a great hater. Of, you wrote about him. Was, did you see that in him? He had his moments. Um, and, uh, and, and in those moments, he, he could um, be not just angry, but, but he could be hateful. Did know? it work? Uh, didn't work for him. Um, I mean, the most, one of the more famous hates he had was for Louis Brandeis. Um, and it was mutual. They, uh, and, uh, but I think that ended up working more for Brandeis than it did for Taft. Uh, Taft was, to some extent, a, a, a reflective of his time. Uh, he, like many people, reacted negatively to Brandeis, in part because he was Jewish. Um, there were other issues, too. Um, and, and to some extent, when a president becomes that way, somebody who hates something, notice Lincoln really tried really hard not to hate the enemy. Um, even right before he died in his great second inaugural address, he's still trying to hand out a hand to the other side, to find a way to bring people together. Great presidents do that. Awful presidents don't do that. Robert Strauss, uh, can you expand any on any of the presidents you've studied? Were they haters? Haters. Haters. Yeah. Well, and did it work for them? That's interesting. Uh, well, I know my guy Buchanan didn't seem to be a hater. He, he, he did not get along with one guy in particular, Stephen Douglas. It's one guy, you know. He was, he was a big guy, but you know, an influential person. It doesn't seem that there were that many haters. I mean, even when you go back, way back here when we were in Philadelphia, you know, Adams and Jefferson politically were you know, against each other, but they, they had a history before and a history after that they were able to uh, obviate those, those uh, political uh, difficulties. Uh, it, it, it also seems to me that that's part of being a politician, is trying to bridge your hatred in order to get things done. Tell the story about the Charles Evans Hughes appointment, William Howard Taft and the court and who ended up on the court instead of Charles Evans Hughes when William Howard Taft was president, and why? William Howard Taft pined to be Chief Justice of the United States. When he was a kid, his father told him to be Chief Justice is more than to be president, in my estimation. 
And the best job he ever had was being a judge on the US Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. So he unwillingly becomes president because his wife and Theodore Roosevelt make him do it. And all the time, he's still pining to be on the Supreme Court. So finally, a moment arrives, and the Chief Justice uh, uh, dies. Melvin Fuller has to be replaced. And Taft desperately wants to take the seat himself. And he says, I can't help note the irony that I'm signing the commission of someone who, uh, whose job I want. He's about to appoint Charles Evans Hughes, who's the obvious candidate. He's the dynamic, young, former governor of New York, admired by all. And uh, Hughes is dressing on his way to the White House for the interview when the phone rings and it's Taft and he cancels the interview. And then Taft appoints in his place Edward Douglas White, uh, an overweight uh, Southern Democrat whose only qualification for the job is Taft's hope that White will die in time for Taft to <laughs> take his place. So White becomes Chief Justice and he serves for about 10 years and Taft is a former president. He stops by every couple years to, you know, how are you doing? Do you want some more cheesecake? And how are you feeling? Tragically, White refuses to expire. <laughs> Happily and without, for Taft, and without any warning, uh, White uh, drops dead uh, all of a sudden. And then Taft lobbies hard and he has to mobilize all of his forces and he persuades Harding to appoint him and he achieves his lifelong goal. And this is just, he's, he teed it up perfectly and he goes on to become, according to Doug Ginsburg, who told me here on this uh, stage, the second greatest chief since John Marshall. So it's a wonderful story of uh, forward planning. <laughs> As you point out in your book, he appointed in one term. Four, four years, six members of the Supreme Court. And as you point out, Michael Gerhardt, Jimmy Carter, zero. So talk about, all three of you, if you would, talk about the importance of or the lack of uh, significance when you cannot appoint somebody to the court. Yes, um, making court appointments is, a, is something presidents all want to do because they can shape the court and it becomes part of their legacy. Uh, but I should hasten to add, and I know Jeff would agree with this, uh, Taft didn't kill White. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, just, I want to really bury that right now. Uh, um, but, uh, and, and, and that is, in some respects, some, something is important because it's not just a joke. Presidents can't do certain things. They can't make people grow older. They can't make people get sick. They can't, I mean, I can, I can imagine the current president hopes that just something happens to Justice Ginsburg. I mean, um, and there are many of us who hope nothing happens to Justice Ginsburg. Um, uh, and so uh, there's fate, or whatever word you want to use for it, ends up uh, presenting presidents with some opportunities. Taft got his, um, maybe sooner than he expected. Um, and uh, Lincoln, of course, got a different kind of opportunity. Uh, he had to decide. What do we do? South look like, looks like it's going to secede. Um, Carter, bring this back to Carter really briefly. You know, Car I can't say Carter was pining away to, to make a, um, a, 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 an appointment to the court, but every president that had served a full term before Carter got that chance. As you say, Taft got several chances. Carter got none, and I think that's another reason why he gets sort of downgraded as president, because he doesn't get to make that important appointment. However, he makes a lot of influential lower court appointments, um, a lot of them, including two circuit court judges who are later elevated to the Supreme Court. Stephen Breyer and Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg were both appointed to the appellate court by Jimmy Carter. 
George Washington had 11. Obviously, he started things out. FDR, nine. And then William Howard Taft, six. But go to Dred, well, Dred Scott yeah, and Dred the importance Scott. of that and how that all happened during James Buchanan. Well, there's, there's a, a, a theory that probably is true, that uh, uh, Buchanan wanted the Dred Scott decision to happen. What he definitely wanted was he, he came into office saying that he was going to solve the problem of slavery. I don't know that he had a particular solution, but here was this case winding around. Dred Scott, the former slave, had gone into the, uh, up to Minnesota with, well, what became Minnesota with his master. He comes back to St. Louis, master dies. Uh, he says he's free uh, because he, he was, uh, he was living in the, in the uh, territories that were not supposed to have slavery. In any case, the, the court case comes and uh, uh, Roger Tawney uh, is the Supreme Court Chief Justice, uh, Francis Scott Key's brother-in-law. They're all related, all these guys are related. <laughs> anyway, so, so uh, uh, but the court is split five to four, not conservative and liberal as today, but Southern and Northern. And uh, uh, Buchanan apparently had a discussion with, with uh, Tawney before he took office, after he was elected, and uh, uh, said, what are we going to do about this? And uh, uh, Tawney says, well, I can't have a five to four major decision. It's just nobody's going to you know, buy into that. If you can convince somebody to change his mind. Well, Buchanan, I, I, does any, anybody here go to Dickinson College? Okay, well, you're responsible for the Civil War. <laughs> so Buchanan went to Dickinson. Tawney went to Dickinson. And there was a third Supreme Court justice that went to Dickinson, went to him, changed his mind. The, the case was sort of seven to two, but definitely six to three with a concurring opinion. And uh, this, you know, most vile of Supreme Court cases came to be because of Dickinson College. <laughs> <laughs> Je Jeffrey Rosen, uh, in Michael Gerhardt's book, he talks about Jimmy Carter, and he makes this statement. Um, he was a tremendously good man. How often, first of all, do you agree with that? And how often do you say that about the f 44 men that have been president? I must, uh, before answering that important question, put in a plug for our new Civil War exhibit, which I want you all to see downstairs, which I'm going to show you, Brian, too, which has Dred Scott's freedom petition. The original petition that Dred Scott filed to the Supreme Court signed with an X because he couldn't write, and it's that story, as you say so well, that uh, set off the Civil War by requiring three constitutional amendments to overturn the Dred Scott decision. Was Carter a good man? I cannot look into his heart, although he famously characterized his own heart during the 1976 presidential campaign. Uh, he uh, he, he uh, seems to be a, a, a good man, but um, are most presidents good men, and is there a correlation between private virtue and public uh, virtue? Let me add while you're thinking about well, it. Let thinking me add about, yeah, that's an easy it, question, Brian. No, Thanks a lot for no, that one. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Michael Gerhardt writes, he also <laughs> says this about J Jimmy oh. Carter, that he had integrity. Yeah. He was demanding. 
he was an outsider. Uh, and, you know, he brings up the fact that he gave amnesty to all those who didn't, who dodged the draft during the Vietnam War. But again, if you've, I don't, any of you can jump in on this. Talk about the good and the most integrity-ridden presidents. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no doubt, I'll, let me start with my guy. Taft was a very good man. Uh, when we talked about him being a hater, that's because he had a strong sense of personal loyalty. When he felt it was affronted, he would lash out. And his feud with Brandeis was ambition. He wanted to be appointed to the Supreme Court, and he had this fantasy that Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic president, would appoint him, Taft, over Brandeis. But the thing about Taft is he made up with Brandeis. And when they were on the court together, he was so devoted to the institutional legitimacy of the court and to massing the court, as he put it, that he would join Brandeis' decisions with which he disagreed. They would both uh, set aside their disagreements to converge, and they ended up working together well. But Taft shows that there's no necessary correlation between virtue, and he was an incredibly devoted husband, which is a really important sign of virtue. Taft lovingly nursing his wife Nellie back to health after she had a stroke and taking hours a day to teach her to speak again. Incredibly devoted to his kids who did so well from Robert Taft, Mr. Republican in the 20th century, to uh, his daughter Helen. Uh, Taft, who became a really distinguished uh, history professor and, and uh, uh, president of Bryn Mawr. Um, none of that means that you're a good leader, because leadership requires things like deliberation, flexibility, the accommodation of competing points of view, the willingness to listen to your opponents that may not correlate with public virtue. Just thinking aloud, I remember reading one anti-Nixon historian who said that Nixon was the only truly wicked president that we had. And I don't think that that's true. I have a soft, I love presidential biographies, and as Evan Thomas's recent Nixon biography shows, there was such a human side to Nixon. He was so vulnerable, and he also did a great deal of good in foreign policy, and, he had, and, and, and even his awkward attempts, failed attempts to connect with his wife and kids, you can't help but empathize with the humanity of it. Uh, Can I interrupt to say that also sure. Evan Thomas said in that book that Richard Nixon was weird. Well, he was weird, but that, that shouldn't disqualify any of us from, you know, from public uh, uh, So you would agree that he like was that. weird? Yes, he, he was definitely, he was weird. He was definitely weird. Uh, asking Fred Malik to uh, count the Jews was, was weird. That showed a certain obsession. Calling uh, William Rehnquist Wrenchburg uh, was weird. And... Uh, and his, um, he didn't like to be touched, of course. There's the sign of him, uh, the teeth marks on the aspirin bottle. You know, he, he couldn't, he was awkward, so he couldn't open the aspirin and he would kind of try to, but, but for me, that weirdness just showed, it was the awkwardness, which stemmed from his mom and dad. And that's, you know, we, we were here on our comfy chairs in the National Constitution Center. You really do have to go back to the relationships with the mom and dad to, under any, to understand anyone's character. And his weirdness came from that pinched but demanding mother and uh, similarly Reagan's inaccessibility from his alcoholic father and so forth. So, you know, each of us is complex in his own way. But you're, I haven't really answered your question about whether there's, you, you need to be good a good person to be a good president. My instinct is, is no, that you don't. And I guess I'd like to know what everyone Robert says to Strauss, say. the uh, other uh, presidents that Michael Gerhardt writes about, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, Chester Arthur, Grover Cleveland, Calvin Coolidge, Jimmy Carter, Benjamin Harrison. How about this whole business about being tremendously good well, and decent? You know, we had, a, we had this sort of 
if you studied history, you probably uh, in high school went right from Jackson to Lincoln, right? All those other guys in between, several of whom he mentioned. Uh, so there's a, a fallow period of the presidency, uh, at least I, I don't know that historians would, would, would always say that, but, but it, it's pretty much that Congress ruled. I mean, we had great uh, congressmen. I mean, even, even if you didn't agree that with uh, Jefferson Davis's or uh, 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 John Calhoun's politics, they were great men. They were prominent men. And, and of course, uh, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster. Um, so so uh, I, I wonder if they were sort of just sort of hail fellows well met, you know, and, and not, not made for the presidency, not made for, or at least made for the presidency as we view it now as a strong man, you know, a, a Roosevelt or a Reagan or, or somebody like that. Mr. Gerhardt. Well, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think um, the presidents don't necessarily have to be good, but I think they have to recognize good in other people. Uh, and they have to achieve something good. That is an, a commonality in the presidents we've rated very highly. Um, Lincoln um, was a complex guy, was a complex character, the guy that's been rated the highest president of all time. Um, but one thing, and, and Lincoln was also something else, which I think is another characteristic of some of the great presidents. He was extremely good at reading other people. Um, and uh, Stephen Douglas, who you wrote about, um, and who, of course, uh, Reagan, uh, Lincoln, um, not Reagan, <laughs> uh, Lincoln, um, had to go up against Douglas a couple times, once for the Senate, later for the presidency. But what's really interesting is Douglas was a hater, but he did not hate Lincoln. And in fact, when Douglas learned that he would face Lincoln, he said, I, 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 I'm paraphrasing, I, I really like Lincoln. He's a good guy, you know, um, which is really extraordinary coming from Douglas. Believe me, he would not say that about anyone else. He does say that about Lincoln. Um, and I think the people who end up working with Lincoln end up thinking he was difficult sometimes because he wouldn't always tell you what he was thinking. He, um, sometimes he would go back on what he said and things like that. He was very pragmatic. He, I mean, he had a lot on his plate. Uh, um, and presidents have to deal with that. But I think at the end of the day, um, presidents, I think, have to um, think about goodness um, because they have to achieve something that is good because that's what's going to be lasting. In a few minutes, we'll go to the questions. And I don't know where the little cards are. Do you have no cards? Okay, uh, we ought to, in the next few minutes, thank you, Susan, very much. Uh, all right, what are the chances that we talk about and think about the presidency too much? Well, they're high. Uh, in, uh, in the framers thought that Congress would be the most powerful branch, an impetuous vortex sucking all else into its uh, voracious jaws. Uh, the judiciary would be the least dangerous branch, but the chief magistrate, as they put it, was supposed to be a constrained office that would take care that the laws were faithfully executed and be commander in chief, uh, exercising the will of Congress within constitutional bounds, but not a popular leader. 
And this was Taft's whole point, to the degree that he has constitutional significance, it is that he marked the year, 1912, that the presidency was transformed from a constrained and constitutional into a popular and populist office. When you have both Wilson and Roosevelt saying that the president is a steward of the people who directly channels their will, then you have a very different vision of the presidency than the framers imagined, and Taft thought it was a threat to the Madisonian separation of powers that could lead to demagogues and the mob and to presidents currying favor with factions by making demagogic appeals and uh, therefore threatening liberty. Today, obviously, we're seeing the fulfillment of some of those fears, not only because of the current incumbent, but because of social media, which allows presidents to communicate directly with the people in a way that Madison would have found a, a nightmare in Federalist 10. He says direct communication between the president and the people is the worst thing that can be imagined because of the danger of demagoguery. So the president is so uh, salient. He just occupies so much airtime. We can personalize the government in him or her that the danger is that he will distract us through his uh, tweets and personal peccadilloes and virtues from paying attention to serious, complicated questions of public policy and constitutional law that require uh, a lot more time and attention than, than quick takes. So yes, I think we are absolutely paying too much attention to the president. But we also started out with, with you know, the greatest American, you know, uh, George Washington. We started out with a strong president or at least a person who was made, you know, publicized to be a, uh, a strong president and, and a significant man nonetheless, no matter what you would have said about his presidency, whether you agreed with his politics or not. He was a general. I mean, he was our, you know, he was the guy on the white horse. I don't know that his horses were white, but, but in any case, he was, he, he was, so he, he's the signal guy. Now, if our first president was Martin Van Buren, we might not have said that. We might have, you know, I don't know the, I don't know the, the first presidents of, of, of other European countries, but I, I, I would bet that many of them, Charles de Gaulle, at least the first president of modern France, were, you know, another strong man. So maybe that's the point of why we discuss them. I, I think the other, uh, I, I think one reason why people think about the presidency a lot is because um, one thing that gets left out of the equation a, a lot of times um, in uh, thinking about great leaders is they need followers. They need the people. They need the people not just to vote for them, but to support them. Um, and they need to enjoy, to some extent, interacting with people. Taft hated it. I mean, Lincoln actually liked it. Lincoln sometimes, you know, the great storyteller. You know, Lincoln would stop almost anybody and say, let me tell you a story. And sometimes, you know, this is part of the brilliance of Spielberg's, Spielberg's movie about Lincoln is, you know, finally Stanton says, oh my God, another story, you know. Um, but there's more realism in that than not. And, and I think that um, the other thing about presidents is to some extent they reflect something else. I think the American people, almost in spite of them, themselves, sometimes want and that's a king. Um, they go back and forth on it, but they like to look up to somebody. They want to look up to somebody. Um, and the presidency can occupy a position no other leader can occupy, which is he, at least so far he, um, is always in the camera, always in the people's eye, always being written about. People are always sort of telling stories about them, 
biographies about them. We have days dedicated to them, not to great Supreme Court justices, not to great members of Congress, but we do have President's Day. Um, and it's a little bit of a reflection of how, to some extent, we've, we threw off a king. But there's a little bit in us and in the American people, I think, that want there to be good in the president so they can revere them and honor them to some extent like a king. Should we be trying to rate them? I know it's even in the subhead of your book about rating uh, presidents. Jeffrey Rosen, is it a good idea or a bad? Let, let me just tell you a quick story and see what your reaction is to this. At C-SPAN, we get a lot of students. And we, for some reason, I get a lot of Ohio students. And I had a group in, I will, the name of the school remained uh, in my head, not yours. Uh, they're great students, great kids, and enjoy them very much. But I asked them, what have you done since you've been in Washington? And invariably, they get around to, we've been to Arlington National Cemetery. Now, these are Ohio students. And I'll say, what did you see it at the cemetery? And they said, the John F. Kennedy gravesite. And I'll say, well, I ask them, who else is buried in Arlington National Cemetery? And they have no idea. What other president? They have no idea. And it's a president that served for four years and nine years as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And his obelisk is within walking distance. And they have no idea. And they don't even know who William Howard Taft is. What does that say about either history or civic classes or glamour or you know, the assassination, of course, is a horrible story. But uh, fill in the blanks on all that. Which, I mean, we rate everything. We rate uh, colleges and law schools and uh, museums and uh, opera houses and so forth. But I think the C-SPAN ratings of presidents are extremely helpful. We learn so much about history from Susan's incredibly learned introduction to why the different presidents were good and bad. And the fact that the C-SPAN historians accurately identified Taft's greatest, greatest strength, administrative skill, and his greatest weakness, public persuasion, and I think did that for all the presidents, helps us evaluate uh, leadership. Also, it helps us uh, have heroes and also put them in perspective. It inspires us to learn about history, and it makes us have a conversation like we're having now, which is, I think is I'm at least learning a lot from. And your question, which I'm still pondering over, and I long will, you asked, you know, can you be good and be president? And I thought, were the top presidents good? And you think about Roosevelt, uh, number uh, three, and such a complex person. He had at least uh, affairs of the heart, if not more, with uh, uh, his secretary, Missy Lehand, and, and, and his, uh, spent a lot of time with his distant cousin, Daisy Sookley, walled off from his children who felt they didn't know him, this very um, unusual marriage with Eleanor. But, but it was precisely that compartmentalization that allowed him, in some ways, to give of all of the empathy that Michael talked about to the nation, that and polio, which so humbled him and gave him a, a feeling of empathy with the poorest and most downtrodden. He, he was not able to lavish on his intimates, but was to the world. And just thinking about that is interesting, and it's important as citizens. So ultimately, what 
the Constitution Center and C-SPAN are trying to do is inspire people to be good citizens, and that involves making judgments about leadership and about what you think the Constitution means and what you think American history means, and that's why we need, I said we were paying too much attention to the president on a day-to-day -day basis, but, but the presidents are the way into history because you need to tell stories and you have to personalize it and you have to make judgments and connect and you have to be a kid and, and be inspired to, to learn more, you know, to read those books. So in that sense, um, I think reading them is fine. Mr. Tuff? Well, I would think that we rate pretty much everything, right, as Jeffrey was saying. And uh, I, I would say, I don't know when this became true, but maybe it was always true, that the president is the most well-known person in America. Now, maybe Muhammad Ali was more well-known there. You know, they had Babe Ruth and Herbert Hoover saying that I had a better year, so that's why I got paid more. But, uh, but in general, he is the one who represents America in, in some way. Uh, both internally and externally. Uh, I don't see how you could not say that Donald Trump isn't the most well-known person in America. Uh, and and, and that's, that, differ, that makes us differ from even the, uh, the English system where it's parliamentary, they're the heads of parties. Theresa May's not prime minister, who's the next guy? He might last for a few months, be the next guy. So, so uh, uh, we're, we're sort of destined, and we're a celebrity-ridden written, uh, country anyway, and the president is a celebrity as well. Not, you know, not just a, you know, I mean, I, I know there are a lot of people who must read Ashton Kutcher's tweets, but not as many as listen to Donald Trump's. Well, I, I think, again, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's not just because Americans like to rate things and grade things. It's because presidents um, care about ratings. Presidents care about something else. They care about being remembered. We all want to be remembered. Uh, stories help that. Um, and presidents, I think, intensely want to be remembered. Uh, even not the great presidents. Uh, but one of the defining things for presidents is how they are constantly comparing themselves to other presidents. So even if we don't rate them, they will rate themselves. Uh, Lincoln, um, near the end of uh, his first term, uh, right before his second term, is talking to Nikolai and Hay, and is basically saying, what do you guys think? Of, you know, I think I'm doing pretty well against the others. Uh, that's a paraphrase. He was much more eloquent than that. But, but he was thinking about it. And so that rating um, effort is being done always not just by Americans, but I think by presidents. They're always thinking about, how do I compare against the others? And that's another form of writing. I'm going to ask Susan to come up, but, but in preparation for the question from the audience, I want to ask, this is such a trite question, but I love it anyway. <laughs> if each of you could invite three former presidents to the table for a dinner, for a conversation, which three would you invite? Well, of and course, it, of course I'd, I'd want to have Buchanan because he would provide. <laughs> you should have seen the, the list of food and liquor at his inaugural ball. <laughs> Saddles of this, cauldrons of that. Anyway, so, I, and I, you know, of course, now that I've sort of studied him in a way, I, I, I'd want him there. Uh, but then I'd want him to uh, be compared to somebody wonderful. And, and I think uh, Washington sort of 
in a certain way, even, even though he was so popular, he was enigmatic. So I'd like, I'd like to, you know, hustle him down on some things. Of course, he had that horrible teeth problem. He might not yeah, have been yeah, able to yeah. eat. Yeah, the skin problem, too. I mean, you know, it's right. Anyway, he could probably do, like, uh, ads in, in between, uh, you know, minor football games. Um, and, and I'd like to talk to Nixon, too, hmm. you know? He seems the most complex of our modern presidents. Michael Gerhardt, who would you have? Well, that's a, another great question. Um, I, I, I don't think it would be any of the presidents probably uh, beginning in the 20th century, part, partly because they're covered so much. We know them better than all the other ones. Uh, some, a lot of them are on TV, TV a lot as, as well, and that allows them to be remembered better. So I would cast farther back, and of course I'd think of Lincoln. Um, who wouldn't, wouldn't want to sit down with Lincoln hear those stories and talk to him. I will t mention another one because he's so forgotten, and that's William Henry Harrison. Let's give him a chance to speak. Uh, 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 and so I'd probably invite him as another one saying, well, what would you, what, what you have done you know, in, that, in those uh, four years? And then the other one might be somebody like James Madison um, because he was there and involved with so much, not just with the founding, but with the birth and development of America so he'd probably be my third. Jeffrey. Of course, you've, you've, you've taken uh, Madison at the Constitution Center. We need him back yeah. <laughs> to ask him quite a few questions. And there's this amazing moment uh, in the Civil War exhibit when Lincoln in 1840 and Frederick Douglass discover Madison's notes being published. That was the year that Madison's notes on the conventions were published. And those are so important that they convince Lincoln that we, the people of the United States as a whole, are sovereign and that secession is unconstitutional. And they persuade Frederick Douglass to change his conception of himself as a man and as a citizen when he sees that Madison said the Constitution should take no position on whether there can be property in men. So what an amazing thrill and necessity it would be for all of us to talk to Madison and find out exactly what went on. You have to invite Jefferson to see if you can have a better dinner party than when Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> but, but also uh, to talk about music and science and, uh, with him and to just channel his genius and his conversation, which was supposed to be so incredibly sparkling. And then I, I, I would, I, I love the question, and I, there are so many, but I think I would like so much to, to meet Harry Truman, who just seemed so authentic, staying up nights, reading, burning a hole in the pillow with a bulb because he was so determined to teach himself about the ancient Greeks and Rome and, and learning about the American century as it was present from this strong, proud, humble, brilliant, strong leader. Susan. Thank you. Um, before I get to questions, when you were talking about haters before, Jeffrey Rosen, in our book, we tell, I think through your, your interview, the rift between Theodore Roosevelt and Taft and how just like the uh, Adams and Jefferson, they came together late in their life. Would you t briefly tell that story? It's a great story. It's a wonderful story. Of course, Roosevelt was Taft's mentor. He persuaded him to run for president. He uh, said he was gonna be the greatest president since Washington. And then they have this painful falling out precipitated over a series of misunderstandings and political differences, including Taft's decision to bring an antitrust suit that Roosevelt had refused to bring, which embarrassed Roosevelt. And then Roosevelt, through ambition, breaks his promise not to run again, runs for president. Taft is persuaded that uh, Roosevelt is a demagogue who's threatening the Constitution. He runs for president unwillingly, 
to defend the Constitution against Roosevelt's demagoguery, votes, prefers Wilson to Roosevelt, so persuaded is he of Roosevelt's perfidy. And then reporters see him on the campaign trail after he's denounced Roosevelt, and he says, Roosevelt was my closest friend, and he just convulses in tears. So it's an incredible uh, drama. But then they do make up, uh, soon before Roosevelt dies, they run into each other by accident in a hotel dining room. And they come up slowly, and they approach each other, and then they start talking and clasping each other's hands, and the whole dining room sees them and breaks out in applause that they've reconciled, and then Roosevelt dies just uh, soon after, and Taft is always happy that they made up. I love that, that the room applauding because they knew their leaders had come back together again. Okay, to the questions from the audience. Uh, how has the availability of uh, universal and instant information impacted our president, uh, which would be different from their predecessors? Michael? Um, well, I, I think that, um, of course, another great question. Um, presidents, Every, again, all leaders care about information. Uh, and, and I think presidents, if they could get more information, almost all presidents want more information. Uh, they want to get informed. I mean, why not? You'll better understand something if you get informed. So being able to gather information more quickly and better through, other, through de the developments that have occurred, arisen with technology, would probably be something all presidents would want. And the other thing about it is you wouldn't want them to abuse it. You know, uh, so how they deal with that information is oftentimes the defining thing about their presidency. Yeah, I'm going to name someone, but if either of you have thoughts that, I, in addition to that, please jump in. Uh, is there any correlation between good or bad presidents and legislative experience coming into office? Well, I will say this. You know, in the last election, a lot was made of Hillary Clinton's uh, resume. Well, there was nobody with a better resume, uh, ostensibly, than James Buchanan. He was, he was a state legislator in, in Pennsylvania. He was a member of the US House. He was a member of the US Senate. He was Secretary of State. He was ambassador to Russia. He was ambassador to England. He had been up for a Supreme Court uh, justiceship a couple times. And it sort of came to nothing. He, he had no great legislative triumphs. Uh, um, he was sort of the last man left to be uh, uh, nominated. He wasn't exactly nominated in the first ballot. I think it was the 16th or something like that, something we wouldn't have today. But, you know, you weren't gonna, they weren't going to have Franklin Pierce back. He, wasn't, he was a disaster. It's like the Phillies sometimes with the relief pitchers. <laughs> bringing somebody else in because he's somebody else. But, but uh, essentially, he was the, the plotter to the top. And there's also, I also have a thought that perhaps uh, Abraham Lincoln didn't have a big bar to jump over to become a great president. And so maybe you're comparing before and after. Uh, uh, I, I won't say, it, it, it's hard to say that about Lincoln, but. Michael, do you have a thought on that? Uh, sure, um, I, I think legislation is critical uh, for a presidency, especially a presidency that will endure or be remembered. Um, uh, presidencies are remembered in part because of their speech, what they say, their rhetoric. Uh, they're sometimes remembered because of the awful things they've done or the failures they had. But they're also remembered for their achievements, I think, with legislation. Um, and so another president often forgotten and rated low is, is John Quincy Adams, um, who, would have, who achieved absolutely no legislative success. But 
um, and while we rate Lincoln the highest, and legislation is part of what he achieves, but of course he creates the possibility for there to be legislation that will be uh, done in the future because he saves the union. But, but just a, a possible counter, passing legislation as president might be important, but think of how few of the greatest presidents did have legislative experience, including Roosevelt, a minor right. state legislator in, in Albany and, and so forth. Johnson may be the only really serious legislator who also had legislative achievements. And Michael, maybe, I would say, I learned from your book, greatness, do you have a constitutional vision? Yeah. Not just do you pass laws, but do you transform the understanding of the Constitution? That's what, there are three republics in American history. The founder, the founding republic, and Washington is the founding constitutional vision of that. The middle republic, the Reconstruction Republic, and Lincoln is the anchoring figure there, and then the progressive era New Deal Republic, and Roosevelt is that one. When you ask what is our next constitutional vision, you see Ronald Reagan aspiring to repeal the New Deal Republic and to resurrect the originalist constitution through transformative Supreme Court appointments. Bruce Ackerman was here last week on this stage and he argues that had Reagan succeeded in his appointment of Robert Bork, he would have been as great a president as Roosevelt and Lincoln because he would have led to a new republic. The, what's so fascinating to think of now is that with one more Supreme Court appointment, a Republican president might indeed achieve the resurrection of the originalist republic that eluded Reagan, and whether you think it's a good or bad idea, that would be just as transformative and significant a presidential act as the transformations of Washington, Lincoln, and Roosevelt themselves. Yeah, I just wanted to add one quick thing to that, um, and, it, and it may help us solve a, a great mystery. Um, you know, oftentimes people say um, about Lincoln, my gosh, he didn't really do anything before he became president. Didn't have much of a resume. But I think one reason why Lincoln gets elected um, is because what people cared about in the 19th century is what they still care about now. And that's what Jeff was talking about. They care about vision. They care about, they care much less about experience than a president's judgment and, and their vision. It, and of course, Lincoln had both. Um, and many of our great presidents, that's what they have. Jeffrey, I'm going to turn to you for this because it's in your time frame. Why has Wilson dropped so many points? Uh, his views on race. The, the president who resegregated the federal government uh, is not a president who can speak to our time. That's one important reason for progressives now questioning Wilson. At the same time, conservatives and libertarians are questioning Wilson. George Will was here uh, two years ago, he's coming back next, uh, I think it's next Wednesday, June 20th, to talk about his new book. George Will says the defining question for whether you're a conservative today is who you would have voted for in the election of 1912. And if you, and, and conservatives, he said, would have voted for Taft, and anyone who voted for Wilson or Roosevelt is a progressive, and Will, George Will, traces to Woodrow Wilson. The questioning of the Madisonian separation of powers, the birth of the progressive imperial presidency that directly channels popular will, the rise of demagoguery, Will, and lots of conservatives and libertarians, blame it all on Wilson. So that's a pretty tough series of critics to have from both sides, and that's why he's going down. Related to that, um, Michael, maybe for you to start on this, uh, do shifting cultural views impact the way historians rate presidents? Absolutely, um, because in, in part because we're all embedded in culture. Um, we're all bound by culture. Uh, presidents as well, they can, they can try and break a lot of things, but they can't break out of their culture. Um, they might be able to change the culture to some extent, 
Um, obviously, Lincoln's vision uh, encompasses in part, let's change our culture in part by getting rid of slavery. You know, break, let's break that, the chain, so to speak, and begin a different way of thinking, and then unfortunately he dies. Um, but I think culture is, is critical for a president because it defines the context in which they operate. Okay, for our crew, we'll take it about 10 more minutes uh, with questions here. Uh, anyone want to tackle this one? J discuss JFK's place. Is it Camelot? Well, he didn't pass much legislation if we went back to that. I mean, most of his, most of the signal uh, things that he wanted to have done, he, he found, uh, uh, well, n not too much success in Congress for. Uh, you know, if we look back, you know, people are, who don't like Trump are in, in a horror of our age, but I mean, my God, the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, we thought we were all gonna blow up. So, so there were a lot of, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a great successful presidency, except culturally, except the, the idea that youth got involved that the Peace Corps started, or, or, or any of these things that, that he represented as opposed to the old times, uh, which is probably now why we're having a resurrection of Eisenhower, where we're remembering those old times is not so bad. Uh, I'm just, uh, I'm thinking as Robert was speaking, you know, silence is not something that helps a presidency. And this reminds me of one of the greatest stories of any president, and that's Calvin Coolidge. Um, Coolidge didn't like, people all that much. He also was burdened by the death of a son while he was president. Um, but he also didn't like to speak that much. He is perhaps the president with the fewest words. And there's this great story, of course, that arises with Coolidge when he's at a dinner party and a woman sits next to him and say, makes, says, oh, I made a bet with someone that I could get you to say more than three words. And he says, you lose. <laughs> Not surprisingly, we have uh, four or five cards that want to ask about the incumbent president, and so I'll, um, I'll ask, I'll use this one, and perhaps, again, Michael, you could start, uh, because you just talked about historians being a product of the culture in which they live. This person wants to know, will historians be able to look at President Trump in a non-biased way? It'll be difficult, but, that, but you know, great historians, that's what they have to do. I mean, they have to find a way to be dispassionate about their subjects so they can be able to write about them in a way that will uh, improve understanding and enrich our understanding of history. Um, I think with President Trump, it, it might probably take some time um, for people to be able to uh, put him in perspective, and that's what historians do. Um, he's also a president that can't, in a sense, stop himself from talking. Um, so the more and more words he he just utters and um, kind of provide ammunition, so to speak, for people to be able to judge him, not just now, but later. Uh, Jeffrey, I'm gonna throw this one to you because it's, it's about the Supreme Court appointments, more or less, but it's using a current example. Regardless of who wins in 2020, is it, it is possible, even likely, the Supreme Court will overturn Roe and gay marriage, both of which are out of step with current majority public opinion. So I'm gonna use that president's ability to appoint and what the majority of the culture might be saying in public opinion polls. Um, so help people understand that. Uh, it's a very important question. So um, 
we just did podcasts on both of these questions, so I think I have some of the poll numbers to mind. A plug for the We the People podcast, where every week I get to call up the top liberal and conservative scholars in America to debate the constitutional issues in the news. And we just had, did a two-part podcast on Roe, which was so illuminating. And since 1973, the polls have been pretty consistent that uh, more than two about two-thirds of Americans have supported the right to choose early in pregnancy, and stronger majorities, 80% or more, have supported restrictions on the right to choose later in pregnancy. And that consensus was pretty well mirrored, uh, not in Roe, but in the 1992 Casey decision. The debate has been transformed recently by this fascinating new debate about fetal life, when life begins, and the effort by some states, including Alabama, to declare that life begins at conception either as a statutory or a constitutional matter, is not supported by large numbers, even within those states. That, that position does not have supermajority uh, or even majority support in the reddest states, but it could uh, very much transform the landscape. So all this is to say, I think conventional wisdom is that you'd need another Supreme Court appointment uh, to change the balance of the court cleanly to overturn Roe rather than just chipping away at it. And marriage equality does have majority support around um, among the country, and it's for that reason that many conservatives and libertarians think that even the Roberts Court will not be in a hurry to overturn the marriage equality decisions, even as it might chip away at or overturn Roe. And that's the answer to the question that over the course of time, Michael and many other wonderful scholars have written about this, the Supreme Court, conceived of as a counter-majoritarian institution, has tended to mirror the broad currents of public opinion. And on the rare occasions when it challenges them, such as during the New Deal, it often provokes backlashes that lead to judicial retreat. What's so dramatic about this moment we're about to enter into? Imagine the scenario that the questioner signals and that I mentioned before comes to pass. President Trump wins, he has another Supreme Court seat, say the court did overturn Roe, and, uh, or even overturn the marriage equality decisions, which are not impermissible, not inconceivable. That would put the court in conflict with the majority of uh, public opinion. It could lead to the striking down of federal laws such as regulations that are supported by a majority of the American people. What happens next? Then the Democrats might be talking again about court packing, about uh, not funding the courts. And the definition of a constitutional crisis, I learned on a recent podcast as well, is when government actually breaks down. One government, one branch doesn't fund the other and government is impossible. These are some of the scenarios that might play out and it's a long way of saying that the court gets strongly out of step with public opinion at its peril, and the public has a way of fighting back. Uh, Michael, this will be last from the audience. It's about Eisenhower inching ahead of Truman in the poll and wondering what happens, especially considering that Truman gave us the Marshall Plan, integrated the armed forces, and stopped the expansion of communism in Korea. Well, it's, a, of course, another great question. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Eisenhower and Truman, you know, they didn't like each other. Um, and uh, it would actually bother Truman a great deal to know that Eisenhower had just inched him. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm sure Eisenhower would just chuckle and think, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think the, the fact that Eisenhower, to some extent, has begun to rise a little bit is, is, the, is there's distance now between us and Eisenhower. We can gain a little more perspective on him. Eisenhower was a president who also was not a man of many words, um, but he was a man, of course, whose deeds and actions, even as president, 
I think have become very important. Jeff mentioned earlier, you know, uh, Eisenhower had to, of course, enforce the civil laws, but it took him some time. Uh, much of it, the story of his presidency is how long it took him. But that may be critical, is he didn't fail at the end. At the end, he ended up um, valuing something, and I'll just come around to the fact that um, one of the things that's really important is, is values. You know, what are the values that animate a president, presidency and define them? I think over time, the presidents who are regarded as great are those who embrace values that the American people as a whole embrace. Presidents that don't do that, Buchanan, fail. Presidents that do that, like Lincoln, succeed and are remembered. Thank you. So the last question is actually about our poll, and it says, should the C-SPAN poll 10 categories be weighted? For example, should not Jackson's genocide of American Indians not count more than some other categories? Our historians, when they formulated it, made the, different, the decision early on to have it be consistent over time and rate each category evenly. 10 times 10 to 1,000. Uh, but I would, I would argue that the, um, the survey does take into account, and that's why Jackson's poll numbers have gone down, in two major areas, pursued equal justice for all and moral authority. So in fact, our shifting understandings of his role in these have affected his poll numbers enormously. So it does get weighted in the, in the court of historians' opinion. If you're a math whiz, go to that website, cspan.org, the presidents. All of the ratings, 10 times the 43 presidents who are rated are all there. You can play with the survey results yourself by knocking off one of the categories, giving more weight to another, and see what happens to the results. Have a little fun with it. So I would like to thank you all for your attention and have you join me in thanking Brian for his questions and our wonderful panelists. conversation was presented in partnership with C-SPAN. This episode was edited by Greg Sheckler and Jackie McDermott and produced by Jackie McDermott and Tanea Tauber. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.